This is 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, a retrospective podcast brought to you by UtilityMuffinLabs.com. Welcome to another episode of 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. I am Nathan. And I'm Bob. And today we are joined by a very special guest, Matthew Dawkins, a.k.a. The Gentleman Gamer. Hello to both of you, and I don't know whether grilling anyone should really be on the agenda today, Nathan, given you've uh, recently set fire to your kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, for those of you that don't know, when you heat oil up really hot and you don't, uh, you don't don't realize you did it, you don't remember that you did it, and uh, you take it off the heat, it will start on fire. So don't heat up the oil unless you're paying attention. Um, but everybody's safe. Nothing terrible happened. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not even going to mention the hairy eyeballs I'm getting right now. So, um, but yeah, thank you, for, thank you for joining us. So um, I think one of the major reasons why we wanted to have you on is because you, um, you've kind of transitioned from fan into professional. And... Uh, that's no more apparent uh, than with the new book that you have coming out, Chicago by Night. So we certainly want to ask you some stuff about that. Um, but before we move forward, can you can you do us a favor and some of our listeners who may not be familiar with you, can you just kind of tell us who you are and like what your credentials are? Well, uh, so my name is Matthew Dawkins. I am a writer and developer for Onyx Path Publishing. I've also performed freelance work for White Wolf Entertainment, Green Ronin, Cubicle 7, Helmgast, uh, those are the guys who did uh, Cult, Divinity, Lost, the most recent edition, which is a beautiful book. Beautiful. And oh, a whole bunch of others who I'm not doing credit. Chaosium. Basically, I'm a, I'm a freelancer, which means I work for whoever the hell will pay me and whoever I've got the time <laughs> to fit into my schedule. Uh, in terms of my credentials, uh, I've written for quite a lot of books in the last five years now, I guess, um, throughout World of Darkness, Chronicles of Darkness, and a whole slew of other games and other game lines. And so you can find most of my credits on drivethroughrpg.com if you just type in Matthew Dawkins. And obviously, if you buy any books that have my name on, I don't receive royalties, but it's still nice to see my uh, my books get go up in the rankings <laughs> on my website. So, uh, if I could, real quick, because I feel it ties in perfectly, I was always curious: is where the concept of the gentleman gamer came from? Well, so when I started up on YouTube as the gentleman gamer, initially. It was just the it was the gentleman's guide to gaming, and the reason I started doing the gentleman's guide to gaming, which was a review show for tabletop RPGs, was because I wanted to find video reviews of tabletop RPGs myself. And there were only about two channels on YouTube at the time that did them. They were Captain Machine and Pugnose Pro, which may have changed its name by now. A guy by the name of Kurt Weigel, who is still very active in the industry and has released RPGs himself. But neither of those shows really did what I wanted to do, and that was give decent deep dives into RPGs, not do sort of ranty shows where I'm just moaning and swearing a lot, and you know, really pick apart the games I like. 
And the idea of being a gentleman about it, doing the gentleman's guide, was I wanted to focus on the things that made me happy about these games, the things that infused me, made me want to play, made me want to run. I thought there's enough shows out there, and I would think at this time someone like the angry video game nerd was at his apex. And so there were loads of shows where someone was on YouTube just screaming and swearing about whatever they love. And that never really appealed to me. I, I like people speaking with passion about things they are passionate about. So I did that. I started up Gentleman's Guide to Gaming, and it was a frequent commenter and long-term subscriber by the name of Tetsubo57. That's his YouTube channel. I, I think it's still going. And he said he was the first person to say, you should call yourself the Gentleman Gamer. And it wasn't really a connection I ever made in my head, but <laughs> that's what it became, mostly because the uh, title, The Gentleman's Guide to Gaming, Vampire the Masquerade Review, was a bit too long for YouTube's title block. But The Gentleman Gamer, Vampire the Masquerade Review, actually fit. So <laughs> that's where The Gentleman Gamer came from. So uh, out of curiosity, were you uh, were you like actively writing for games when you started that, or did that help you to get into writing for games? Uh, no, at the time I was just just a fan, just a role player, and GM, storyteller, call it what you will. I definitely wasn't a writer. I, at that point, I had definitely submitted work to White Wolf of old to write for them. It was probably dreadful. The <laughs> Well, actually, that said, I submitted work to White Wolf probably in a, back in 2004 to maybe 2006 to write for the Vampire the Masquerade trivia game. So here's, a, here's an oddity of information I'm, I don't think I've ever spoken about on a podcast. So back in the mid-2000s, this was after Vampire the Masquerade had been discontinued and uh, Requiem was in full flow. White Wolf were going to release a VTM trivia game, and I guess it was to capitalize on the popularity of Bloodlines. And I submitted to work on it, and I actually got accepted to work on it. And my section of that board game, board game slash card game, was the Malkavians. And I can't remember how much exactly I wrote for that, but the game itself was never published. And the reason the game was never published is because it was awful. It was, <laughs> it was the, the kind of game you would never, ever play unless you had a room full of people who were diehard vampire addicts who have read every single source book. Because there were questions like, what is the name of the sire of Ozzy Hyde White, the uh, Malkavian in Berlin by Night? And the reason I know that that's... That was a question is because it's one of the questions I wrote. <laughs> but the problem is there were questions like that for every single category. And no one was going to know that off the top of their head unless they were someone like me. And clearly, I think it was Ken Cliff was the vampire developer at the time or creative director or whatever at White Wolf. And he decided to pull the plug on it. And so for a while... That was my sole venture into, into writing for RPGs. And a bit later than that, I submitted some work for a book by the name of Bloodlines the Chosen, became known as Bloodlines the Chosen, uh, for Vampire the Requiem. I submitted a Bloodline because it was a book comprised entirely 
or consisting entirely of uh, fan-submitted bloodlines that you would write as a fan. It would then get developed by a White Wolf employee, edited by someone at White Wolf, you know, made to look good. And the bloodline I submitted, sadly, was not chosen. The bloodline's the chosen. And probably ended up with thousands of others in a recycling bin somewhere for good reason, because I doubt it was very good. But um, after that, there was a good, I guess, seven-year period where I didn't write for any RPGs. It was just me and the YouTube channel making reviews of RPGs, occasionally doing uh, live plays of RPGs, doing deep dives, as I said, about you know, the Gentleman's Guide to Vampires is probably the most popular one where I would talk about the Ventru at length or the Samdi at length or whatever came to mind at length. And then the Pentax Guide to Werewolves, uh, Guide to Requiem Clans. And the the channel really developed a following. I mean, it, when I started getting popular in the RPG vlogger sense of the word, I guess around 15,000 subscribers or so. That's when Geek and Sundry came along. And uh, by no means am I bitter about this, but Geek and Sundry obviously came along with significantly greater production values than anyone else who was in this market. And it kind of absorbed a lot of the interest away from the idea of uh, a guy sat in front of a bookcase talking about RPGs. And um, and of course, now you have things like Critical Role, you have Saving Throw, you have all kinds of channels like that that, um, that look good, They're, they do decent editing, and I've never edited anything in my life, as anyone who's watched my videos can tell. You know, they are <laughs> pure stream of consciousness for as well, much like what I'm saying right now. And so you'd get something like Gig and Sundry, compare it to my channel, yeah, people started interacting with it a little less. Um, by no means do I feel that my channel has lost its niche. I think that it's still got a very dedicated following, and were I to start doing a video a week again, a lot of people would engage with that because people enjoy the way I talk about games, uh, game elements, but I don't know that it would ever have the same level of excitement for the viewer as it did before the... Uh, the days when RPGs went Hollywood with Geek and Sundry. <laughs> well, I, what, go ahead, Bob. I was going to say, is I have, a, I have a funny story about that, because how I heard of you uh, as a gentleman gamer, and I, just, I didn't even know your name, I just knew Gentleman Gamer. I was starting up a, we were, me and Nate were going to start up a game, our online one, and we were doing like a slew of interviews. I mean, it was something crazy, like 10 to 15 a week at some point of just talking to people online and get the idea of what themes, et cetera, that you want to do as a storyteller to get a game going. And I had a player who was pretty combative about, uh, passionate and combative about their point of view of a character. And they said, well, the gentleman gamer would disagree with you. And I sat, and I sat there and I was like, excuse me? He said, the gentleman gamer would disagree with you. I was like, who the hell is that? And I was like, are you, are you being a gentleman? And that's, and that's what I said. And they go, well, you know, you need to learn your 15 minutes. And I just I stared. It just like I was staring straight ahead going, I, I can't believe what I'm hearing. And I just paused and uh, I had, a, you know, I was polite about it. I was like, okay, cool. Maybe, maybe there's something to this. I didn't know what I had said wrong. And I, and I, and I let that go. And it turned out that, you know, I, I get in a chat with everybody else and like they were hesitant to tell me that there's a channel that I could go check out with content. So in my ignorance, all I went on was 15 minutes 
It was 15 minutes. I have an entire thing we got to talk about, in-depth dives reading I want you to check out. I'm trying to help you understand the material that you claim that you don't know. And But you do know, and I was trying to get them to see that, and they were like, Bob, can you just check out this website? And then when I saw it, I immediately sat there and stared, and it was one of the most embarrassing things ever. Because not only did you exist, I'm looking at That's an embarrassing fact, yeah. <laughs> but it was 15 minutes of me going, I was, I was sitting here trying to make a connection, and I was like, this is, this is fine. This is awesome. Like, it, here's a quick review of what goes on. It gives you enough to wet your whistle to want to do a deep dive. And I was like, oh, this is cool. But the funny part is the aftermath of that. Like, ever since that one incident, like, months later, people are, like, going, oh, man, you know, Bob of Nerd Words, you know, VTM, 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade, he hates Gentleman Gamers. Like, no, I don't. Yeah, right. I watch the videos now. It's, it's not. So you're the guy that hates the Gentleman Gamer. I've heard of you. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm glad I've got you here now because I'm going to kill you. No. Um... <laughs> but my, my point was is that you know, start the fire. <laughs> my point is, is that you're still, in my opinion, quite popular and more than relevant uh, because of that. Not only that, because the transition to Onyx Path as well and all the writing you did, I'm shocked because when I started looking at all the stuff you had written, because that's what happens, right? That's a deep dive. Once you get embarrassed, you say, oh, this guy's pretty cool. You got to look him up. And I was like, the the excuse me, the World of 20 update for Book of the Worm that mm. you had worked on, I was like, I love that book. That book's that amazing. Was my first ever Onyx Path assignment. Well, I'll get on to I'll get on to that in a sec, actually. But the um, it's interesting you mentioned that the I guess preconception that you might hate me, that people would assume you would hate me. And there's a there's a small undercurrent of it. You find it. Uh, I'm I'm going to start sounding quite arrogant now, and I apologize, but. One finds that when uh, <laughs> when one reaches a certain level of popularity, uh, a natural sense of bitterness emerges from some people. And it's not always bitterness or resentment. Sometimes it's just a fundamental disagreement with the way you do things. And then they look at how popular you are compared to how popular they are on something like YouTube. And they start feeling like, well, look at this jackass. So I, he does not. He doesn't even put edits in his videos, and somehow he manages to court public opinion. It's because he's British. It's because he's got an accent. <laughs> and the fact is, I have no doubt that a lot of my popularity on YouTube is down. Is down partly to being British. It's partly down to the accent. It's because I speak clearly. I make my points very clear. And the way I structure sentences is particularly pertinent. It's something I mentioned in other interviews, but I have trained myself to speak in the way that I do in order for people who aren't native English speakers to be able to understand clearly what I'm saying. And now a sentence like the one I just said is, isn't structured in a way that most people would use, but I am very conscious of the way other people and interpret what I'm saying, understand what I'm saying. And so when I look at the metrics or whatever they're called on my YouTube channel and see where most of my viewers are from, very few are from Britain, uh, there's actually a large proportion in places like Portugal, Spain, Scandinavia, and further into Europe. And when I went to things like World of Darkness Berlin, the number of people that come up to me and have seen my channel and will say to me, 
I love your channel because I can understand exactly what you're saying. It's it's a small thing, but it, that's it, that's warming to me. You know, I like that people can just engage. I don't need to put subtitles on, although I you know I'm more than happy to if I have the time and the money. But to go back to the resentment thing, um, there's. I think with any any time anyone reaches a level of popularity, someone is going to be bitter. I remember for a long time, you're probably familiar with Darker Days Radio, who are another podcasting network. I was told for a very long time that the guys over there hated me. I've worked with them since, and I've never picked that up from them. But that kind of professional resentment where we're all playing in the same playing field, which means we must be rivals, Right. is ultimately a waste of time. It's not something I lose any sleep over. And if other people are trying to tear me down while I'm asleep, then all power to them. I don't think they'll manage it. Uh, that's not me throwing down the gauntlet. I just can very rarely bring myself to to care over much, to remember a name of someone who, who dislikes me. The... Um, fact is, and this is something I found uh, when I used to run a lot of communities online, is there's often a stigma against blocking people. We're, we're told that you, know, you shouldn't block people, that's rude, you should entertain people, you should engage with people even if they disagree with you. But to that, and I put my YouTube channel on the same level, if someone walks into my shop, if I was running a shop and starts calling me a twat and starts <laughs> saying all oh, my books are crap, I'm going to ask them to leave and I'm probably going to bar them. You know, if it's a restaurant or a bar, I am going to say, you're not allowed back in here. And if they try and come in, I'll get the bouncers to throw them out. So why should I have to put up with that online? If someone comes up to me and says, you're a dick, well, you know, I'm right. not going to talk to you then. Bye. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know what am I getting out of this relationship exactly? Yeah, that's yeah. that's definitely something that we've we've had to encounter on a number of occasions. I know when we first, uh, like, I would say we were five or six months in, uh, we started to you know realize that there was a tendency for people to sort of divide into camps, and like when Bob and I started this podcast, we were just like, Hey, we, we have recording equipment and also we are fairly knowledgeable about this game. So let's just like make a podcast, right? We didn't do any, like we didn't look around. We weren't especially tuned into like what was happening. Um, you know, in, in like in the internet community, we just were like, let's make a podcast. Maybe somebody will listen to it. And so we started to encounter um, very slowly and very subtly where people would kind of like divide into camps, right? They would hear the words that we would say and they'd be like, yes, whatever you're saying is totally what we agree with. And we were like, okay, that's awesome. And then, you know, people would be like, hey, what did you know that there's this podcast and they do this like you? And, you know, Bob and I, of course, were like, awesome. Like we want everyone that is enjoying this game to express how much they're enjoying it. Um, but you know, people started to sort of divide into these camps and kind of like what Bob was saying was, you know, as we started to interact with like a new community of people that were from different places and had played the game differently, 
we noticed that there was like a level of conflict that was brought with it. And we were like, mm, that's not really what we're after. You know, we're not, we're not really looking for, for that. We're, we're much more interested in, in, you know, the community aspect of it. And so, you know, it was important for us to, um, you know, try to establish that even though in our podcast, we may have a very different way of saying things and a very different way of looking at things. We're not here to say we're right. You know, we're here to say this is our opinion. And that's why we've kind of strayed from doing interviews. But now I feel like we've established enough that, you know, we are, you know, we're working within the confines of the community. We want to, you know, help to enrich it. Now we can have people like you on and go, see, we don't know. There's no conflict. We, we all like to work together. Yeah. And, you know, you can feel free to disagree with something I've said. You know, I can either hear you out or choose not to. That's, that's my freedom as a guest. Right. Right. Of course. So, um, let's get into a little bit, if you don't mind, let's get into kind of the crux of what brings you here and kind of what really, I think Bob and I are, are pretty excited about. I don't, I don't know. We haven't talked about it in great detail, but I'm very excited about it. Um, and that's the Chicago by night, the V5, uh, revision or whatever you, you would call it. The, the new version. You're psychic. You knew I was excited about it. Can I just say that when the review came out and I had it and I saw my pick for Prince was there, when I saw it, I won't, I won't, I won't necessarily say because I don't want to ruin it because there's a lot of people who kind of take betting squares on what it could be. And I was like, yes, there's just I love that character and just to see it brought forward, I was, I was super excited. But for anyone who was unaware, it's Nathaniel Baldruff, the uh, Nosferatu witch. <laughs> <laughs> It is not. It's not. <laughs> but he well, is in it. Uh, Nathaniel Bordroff is. It's uh, kind of eerie. You state that that has got to be my most used character in all the years of running Chicago by Night, being in it live action. You know the whole nine. It's. Uh, I'm excited that you even uttered his name. I can't mm-hmm. wait to see what goes on with him. He's still a homicidal maniac. Uh, it's <laughs> all kindred and somehow hasn't been put down yet. Uh, the uh, he's very excited, you know, uh, in probably a bit too lusty a way by the activities of the Second Inquisition. Um, but at the same time, he feels bitterly resentful that uh, they're doing it better than he ever did. But <laughs> um, uh, yeah, he's sort of haunting the rest of the Nosferatu and uh, trying to take at least one of them under his wing as a fellow um, hunter because he sees something pure in them. But uh, obviously it's not quite reciprocated because there's nothing pure in Nathaniel Bordereau. He's a horrible, horrible character. (laughs) I I do have something, though, that is a a general statement and one that uh, I, I was discussing with people online last night trying to get the idea of how to use the the call or the beckoning that happens and how that would tie into the book for Chicago by night and fifth head or V five, fifth head, maybe oh, yeah. uh, six of one, etc. Um, well, yeah, but the beckoning is present in Chicago by night for V five. We'll just call it Chicago by night. And one of the things that's particularly present in previous editions of Chicago by Night uh, is the conflict between the two Methuselahs, Helena and uh, Menel, Menelae or Menelaus. 
um, the, the Torreador and the Bruja, who have been fighting since Carthage. Now, due to the beckoning, which, for anyone unaware, is drawing an awful lot of the older vampires away somewhere, uh, presumably neb- to the nebulous east, which, if you were in India, wouldn't make any sense. So, if you were <laughs> if you were a Danava or a Ravnos and you're of the fourth generation, congratulations for still being alive, um, but also, you're being beckoned west. So, Either way, you're being beckoned, and that's partly due to the potency of your blood or your generation, but the point is, from a game design point of view, it clears the decks somewhat for the uh, player characters to make more of a dent. It also allows weaker vampires to take positions of power, such as the Prince of Chicago in this edition who will rely more on his backgrounds than on his raw disciplines. Uh, so, you know, it's more about the mortals you're manipulating and the kindred who owe you favours than the fact that you've got level 8 dominate, which isn't a thing in V5. Now, that's not to say every single Elder and Methuselah is gone. Quite the contrary. Uh, if you've been following the previews for Chicago by Night, you'll see that Chrysius, who is a fifth generation, sixth generation maybe uh, Bruhar, I should know that off the top of my head um, is still around uh, fifth generation I think um, yeah because I think it's uh, so his child Damien and Helena is still around as well as we will find out as the previews march on and therefore the question arises why are they still around? And each character who is of that elder blood potency or greater has got a reason. Now, they may not actually be accurate reasons, as in Critias believes it's because of X, Y, or Z that he has managed to stave off the beckoning. But it could be something completely different. He may not be quite as smart as he thinks he is, um, Critias thinks it's because his blood bond to Menelae has snapped, because uh, his sire, the Bruja Methuselah, has left. He has definitely been back, and he is not in Chicago. But Critias is still there. Critias has been blood-bound to this Methuselah for over 2,000 years, and so completely his mental slave, although he was never left to think that. Now the blood bond has snapped, he thinks that that has basically staved off the beckoning, at least for a while, that sort of shock to the system, much like an electroshock therapy. Whereas Helena, our Toreador Methuselah, has been beckoned. She was beckoned, but she has come back. And how hmm. she came back, what she did in order to break free of that siren's call that was dragging her to somewhere in North Africa or the Middle East is partly described in her background. But obviously there's got to be some room left for storytellers to come up with their reasons. You know, it's got to be mysterious. Otherwise, there's nothing for the storytellers and players to do. So once players' characters start seeing all these powerful vampires just disappearing off the chessboard, the question has got to be, how are these three or these four somehow withstanding it? If, if they care, you know, to that level. They may just be purely involved in a political game, but if you're involved in the jihad of Vampire the Masquerade, then you may start thinking about the more esoteric stuff. 
That that's rather fascinating because the the beckoning is labeled. Uh, I think when I think there was a misconception because there's a lot of people, and it really, let me just speak for me. I had it misunderstood. I thought this was like the the automatic urge pull every second of every day that said they had to leave, and thus um, I, I would say, you know, I started, I jumped into V five games and was like, they're like do Chicago by night, and I was like, everybody who meets X Gen is gone, and now I have to make up what this world looks like, and I and I started doing it, and I went through it, and I said it, it can't be it. So when Chicago by night. Got launched. I saw the preview. I was so relieved. I, I, th- so relieved. I think your expectation was probably well founded from the way White Wolf, you know, and I was a part of White Wolf at the time as well, was describing the beckoning. It was definitely that black and white. But we didn't have any books like Chicago by Night at the time to really explore it or illustrate it. And it makes more sense from a player interest perspective for this to still be going on. Uh, This is part of the reason a lot of people have looked at V5 and said, wow, look at the meta plot shifts. This doesn't feel like Vampire anymore. But there aren't really that many that fundamentally alter the game that have already happened and you can't interfere with us all. Because some people might look at the Bruhar and say, the Bruhar are now Anarchs. That doesn't make any sense. No, some of the Bruhar are Anarchs. Some of them are Camarilla. It just, the Bruhar formally identifies itself as much as clan Bruhar can as an Anarch clan where and they call the Camarilla version Hellanes or they call themselves Hellanes. You know, they're the more civilized Bruhar. Um, but that's still ongoing. About the only things that's popped up in that interim between V20 and V5 that spring to mind that are pretty much done, one and done are the Tremere explosion and uh, the rise of the Second Inquisition, which was a gradual thing anyway. And I imagine, even with the Second Inquisition, in subsequent source books, you will see how they are growing and expanding and adapting and finding out more and more about vampires. All we've seen, really, is a couple of cities have been purged. They're not going to stop at that. They will, you know, they they will change their tactics. And what happens with the Tremere now that they've been divided into not just three houses, it's just three major houses, uh, is another question for you know that we will explore. Anyone who's picked up the V five Anarchs book, uh, which was released to the people who pre ordered yesterday, and I think you can even buy it from the Modifius store already at a time of recording. The um, it actually has another minor Tremere house in there, so a lot of the those shifting plates of V5 haven't just been done, they're not just in the past. This isn't a Forgotten Realms, um, realm shaking events like this. What was it called? And uh, I don't know if either of the two of you are fans of the was it the spell plague, uh, maybe. Uh, either way, there was a 100-year jump in the Forgotten Realms from uh, 3rd edition to 4th edition, D&D. Yeah, I do believe and, it was Spell Plague. Yeah, and it put an awful lot of people off the Forgotten Realms because suddenly all your favorite characters are dead. Right. <laughs> and the idea, Wizards of the Coast's idea was this is so that player characters can become heroes because there's been too much reliance on the Elminsters and Drizzadoerdens. But the fact is, as much as 
a vocal minority always complained about the Elminsters and the Drizzt O'Erdens coming to save the day in the novels. As soon as a, a universe loses those iconic characters, it loses a lot of its character. If if you look at Middle Earth in a hundred years' time and there's no more Gandalf, no more Aragorn, you know, all of those people are gone. It's not really Middle Earth anymore, it's just a few places with the same names. So Vampire is V5 is supposed to be an evolving setting. Right. And you, and I got to say this, uh, V5 is something that's intense, especially for people who are used to a more uh, vulnerable vampire that was not really, I, I felt, it was not the traditional method of, of a vampire in specific, uh, the body composition, meaning how a vampire, you have to use one of the banes to actually kill it. Otherwise, it's very, very, very hard to do it. And when I read that in the rules, and it took me a while uh, to, to get that, and you run it in a scene, it's watching a player understand that they're a monster, right? Mm-hmm. The police come, and normally they would flee, otherwise torpors on the horizon. But when they take like half a dozen reloads, and they're still fighting, and they can still stay in the scene, I, can all, I could hear them try to rationalize the fact that, okay, man, this is, this is beyond the pale. This is like, what am I doing here? And I sat there and went, or you can look at the humanity of that, too. And I was like, that's that's beautiful writing that that makes the player responsible for themselves. And with the blood checks and how it is, that also is an amazing job to do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the the system changes that went with V5, I can't take uh, hardly any of the credit there. That was mostly the work of uh, Kareem, Carl and Ken, the, uh, the evil triumvirate. <laughs> who came up with things like the hunger mechanism and the like. But I feel they really add to Vampire. They make a completely different experience for Vampire. And if anything, this makes me value the difference between Masquerade and Requiem more. Because I love Vampire the Requiem. I think it's a fantastic setting, fantastic rule set. I completely Agreed. love it. But... Now, I have an even stronger distinguishing feature between one and the other. I still love a blood pool. I love a blood pool when it's physically represented on a table in front of players. Because when you've got tangible red beads in front of you to equate to your blood points, that that makes it worth something. But on the other hand, I could be playing with Hunger, where rather than having a pool of resource management game, I've got a constant stress test. and that's that's good, you know. It's no different than playing a playing Urban Shadows has a different mechanic for playing a vampire, or Monster Hearts has a different mechanic for playing a vampire, and that you know that that appeals to me on on a lot of levels. So I wanted to ask you a couple of uh, um, generally um, potentially specific questions about uh, Chicago by Night and. Um, adapting Chicago as a setting for V5. We know, you know, kind of like commenting on, um, you know, the changes in V5 and and the beckoning and, you know, all of those things. So first thing I want to ask, just get it right out of the way, is there anything... Um, in in the older edition, either like the first or second edition of Chicago by Night, that you wanted to include, but that like you couldn't include it because the rules just aren't adapted to it yet. Um, I suppose that's actually a very good question. 
because there's some characters in Jacobo Knight's second edition that are of clans Giovanni, Ravnos, Zimitsi, or Jimisi, or call them whatever you like, <laughs> and even a demon in Chicago by Night. I am familiar with her. <laughs> and none of those characters are in V5 Chicago by Night. And the reason for being because those, those clans haven't been detailed yet, and while I could put Oliver Gannett in V5 Chicago and just give him Dominate and Potence and call him a Giovanni, um, it wouldn't really be fair because, well, I, no one would know how to play his Bane, no one would know how to play his Compulsions because we've not detailed that clan. So that's something I've not been able to carry over to this edition. But to make up for that, we have plenty of Ministry Vampires, so that's the followers of Set of Old. We have a couple of Banu Hakim, so that's the Asamites, because they have been detailed in the Camarilla and Anarch books. And including uh, one ministry vampire who was in Chicago by Night Second Edition, Marcel. Mm-hmm. So I've been able to sort of pick and choose. Well, one of the one of my favorite things I'm very glad we did get into V5 Chicago was only ever at the end of Chicago by Night First Edition. So this is a little thing that I was Always a huge fan of Chicago by Night First Edition was one of my very first city source books, as it probably was for a lot of people. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of people bought it retroactively because most people, it seems, got into vampire in the late nineties rather than in the early nineties. But one of those wonderful chapters was uh, basically Chronicle Hooks, with like a chapter head, the Beast, and you'd have you'd have a, basically a random roll table for encounters that relate to your beast. And then you'd have Diablery and 10 Diablery encounters and then humanity and so on and so forth. And they were just one paragraph story hooks. And I thought, well, for some reason they were only ever in Chicago by Night first edition. So let's put them in this edition. And while we've not been able to go quite as mad with the sheer number of them, we've got a bunch based on Chicago's principles. So those being, I think, hunger, humanity, beast, and hierarchy, I think those are the ones we've gone for. On the basis that were we to ever do another city source book, if that has different themes central to it, that would have different chronicle hooks in the back, you know, that match those themes instead. So, yeah, um, I know that's very much answered the opposite of your question, but to get back to it, there isn't much that I've not been able to somehow twist into V5 Chicago. Okay, part two to that question. Is there anything, um, maybe I know the answer to this, but is there anything in one of the older editions that you were just dead set on not including? You were just like, nope, that's not going in. We're just, we're going to sweep that under the rug and call it a night. Uh, characters with Humanity 10 or Humanity 0. Uh, <laughs> the stat blocks of the old characters because a lot of them are monstrously overpowered to the point of you can't really use them in a chronicle as they're written uh, and believe me some writers I've had a fantastic team on Chicago by Night it's, they, they have been among one of the best teams I have uh, hired to work on a role playing game and 
yet. <laughs> Some of them were quite keen on very much adapting the stat blocks from first and second editions. So you had Damien, I think, with Brawl 7. And uh, ultimately, <laughs> one thing, V5 skills, attributes, and disciplines don't go above 5, so we can't do that. But in terms of humanity, the it does seem that when Chicago by Night 1st edition and Milwaukee by Night and Berlin by Night were written, those books didn't really, the authors of those books didn't really understand what humanity did to a game. Uh, maybe humanity itself hadn't been properly explained in Vampire the Masquerade at that point. But we know now, you know, we know better. So right. it's a small thing, but characters generally have a range of humanity from two through to eight. We may have one character with a humanity of nine, but we've got no absolute saints, and we've got no one who is already a white. I think even Sun, Jason Newbury, who is in this edition, doesn't have zero humanity. He might be on one or two. So it's but, interesting that you mentioned that um, real quick because uh, I actually I reached out to you um, maybe like two or three months ago, actually, to ask your advice about that particular character. Um, mm. because, uh, I, I'm, I'm actually, uh, I'm running Chicago currently with, uh, a, a, a group of, um, a group of folks and, you know, I, I, I'm looking over it and, you know, Bob and I, we'd always gone back and forth on that. Like, okay, so how do we really play this? Right. Because a character with zero humanity, like we have a clear understanding of what that is and that's not what's been written here. So kind of how do we adapt that? Do we say, they're on a path. Do we say they're, they have one humanity, you know, w what do they have? And I was like, you know, I'd like to get a third opinion. I, I would like to, I would like to consult. So I, I actually reached out to you and I said, you know, what would you do? And you said, I'd put them on humanity and give them more humanity. Yeah. I, I think, well, I, I have no doubt parts of enlightenment will appear when a Sabbat book appears in some form or other. And I've discussed with a few people the way I would do, um, touchstones for sabbat characters i think is still quite possible it's just you would make them things like rituals brandings um things like that uh fetishes rather than actual mortals or other members of your pack for that matter perhaps every member of a pack has got to have their priest as a touchstone because they're so fucking bloodbound to him. Right. Um, but in terms of a character like Jason Newbury, who isn't Sabat and is very unlikely to have been scholarly inclined enough to study a path of enlightenment, because he's not that kind of character. He's a charming psychopath. That's about all there is to him at, at a base level, I guess. Um, it makes more sense for me to justify that he has not succumbed to Wasai uh, or becoming a white and you know losing his mind because although he may be on humanity one or two, maybe he has a resolve of four and a composure of five. So his willpower is nine. So despite the fact he probably has no touchstones and his humanity is in at the very bottom level, he somehow constantly finds a way to tame his beast because he has a completely dead will. I wouldn't call it an iron will. He's not struggling with anything. He just doesn't feel the beast and doesn't care when the beast takes over. And he lets it ride through him 
And then he's just, then he just sits back with a pleasant smile on his face and looks at the carnage that he's just caused and the blood that's spattered up the walls. And I think you can, you can do that. You shouldn't use that as the excuse for every single character who you want to be a monster. But for a character like Sun, uh, he is he he is very much that kind of character in my mind. Nathaniel Baldruff, to go back to him, <laughs> the character of the podcast, I guess, is is a similar kind of case because he just goes around killing vampires. He doesn't care about their stories. He doesn't have a conscience so much. Uh, I could actually see someone like Nathaniel Baldruff having a touchstone. It would probably be an incredibly twisted one, much like Horatio Ballard would have a touchstone, who's a member of his family. It, their humanity is going to be damn low, but they will have some kind of anchor that keeps them keeps them there. But once that anchor is cut away, they are they will be lost on the tide, and that will be them. And that's how you make stories around characters. You know, stories don't always have to be uh, based purely on climbing up the Camarilla ladder. Sometimes they can be based purely around one SPC, as they're now known, a supporting character. And you can do it by, uh, in fact, to expand further on this, looking at Methuselahs, looking at Elders, those unassailable characters who have ridiculously high disciplines, uh, some people have said to me, well, how am I supposed to use this in a chronicle? Because in most chronicles, I'm going to be playing neonates and everyone else in the city, all the other kindred you've detailed, are fledglings, neonates, and ancillae, who at least I can talk to. But what's the point in having a Methuselah? Well, the point of a Methuselah is less to do with their stats and more to do with their weakness. Something Ken Height told me is you should look at all these ultra-powerful vampires as a puzzle. And it's up to the coterie to discover what the missing piece is or find out how to you know, remove a piece. Because as soon as their perfectly constructed illusion of life is taken apart, they devolve. They are not Machiavellian, completely in <clears throat> control. They're not eternal kings. There may be some vampires like that, but that should be very few. Most of them are just holding it together because of this illusion they've created for themselves of humanity or, or, or structure or Camarilla or whatever you want to call it. And so someone like Helena isn't someone you take on face-to-face in a fight. She is someone you pick apart at from the wings. You find out who her touchstone is and you remove that touchstone. You find out what mortal in businesses she's influencing and you sabotage them with your mortals. And so on and so forth. Given the uh, popularity of, of, to shift gears a little bit, given the popularity of uh, witches, covens, and mainstream media right now, in particular for horror shows like American Horror Story, etc., mm-hmm. there is a fragment of psychics that used to be in first edition, like they had in Project Twilight and V20. They touched on it a bit with Hunter Hunted 2. Um, is there an aspect for those fans who love that sort of uh, mix with Vampire in particular? Um, do you see that actually having any bearing whatsoever in a uh, in a V5 setting? Oh, definitely. I think uh, when a company ends up doing a second Inquisition book, I would be amazed to find no psychic division. I mean, the second Inquisition is a monolithic organization of hunters that all marches one. 
it's a catch-all term for government agencies, religious hunters, psychics, ghost hunters, anyone who might run into the vampires and have a little more information today than they used to 20 years ago. So I think definitely there's room for, for psychics and, and um, um, hedge magicians, if you like, uh, witches than, well, probably more so than they used to be in World of Darkness. I have a, a, a an interesting question, I think, that um, a lot of people will want to hear answered. Um, as a writer and developer and someone who has worked on V20, who's worked on V5, what do you find is the biggest misconception about V5? And um, how has that affected um, you as a writer and a developer of the material? That's a very good question. Because there's been a few, you know, there's always reticence to addition changes. Yes. And that's not me putting down the people who do refuse to change edition because I'm strongly of the opinion you play with the edition you like and you don't have to buy the new one. Your information isn't suddenly made redundant. I still play Pathfinder. I never really graduated to D&D 5. Um, so biggest misconceptions regarding V5 are that they've trashed the setting. Uh, the White Wolf trashed the setting. Uh, that's blatantly untrue. Uh, the, most of the setting is identical. It's just moved on slightly with the time, which it would have moved on what, with if Vampire had been continuously published from 2003 or whenever Gehenna happened through to now. Mm -hmm. You know, you would have still seen some rather dramatic changes by 2018. Um, so... I don't find the setting changes all that dramatic. I think some of the labels, I guess, that get thrown at White Wolf, the idea that they're making a game for edgelords, that any of it's puerile or you know vulgar. People don't really use words like puerile or vulgar, but that's how I interpret <laughs> the, um, the barbs that get thrown White Wolf's way. I'm I still think, thrown you know, by edgelord. <laughs> yeah, well, you know... Um, Edgelord is obviously a term that's used when people want to say white for putting things in that is vulgar for the sake of being vulgar. Uh, and I don't want to sound too much like a Mage the Ascension fan by constantly talking about vulgarity. But there's, I think, when, and you know, when White Wolf themselves may castigate me for this if they listen to this, but I think when they put out their pre alpha play test, there was definitely an intention to shock. It wasn't done with as much class or context as could have been. And I think that definitely came back to bite them and they learned from it. And when the Rusted Veins playtest came out, they didn't have that level of uh, shock for shock value in, and that was an improvement. And when V5 came out, there was an improvement further on that. But people will... Uh, focus on mistakes you've made and in a sense they should you know that you should have someone criticizing you you can't be left to think that everything you're doing is grand and while i do agree that you shouldn't let fans dictate what your what your creativity produces you know you don't want to be the uh, i guess you don't want your work to be the result of design by committee because right. that can be pretty crushing to a creative and it often doesn't result in anything particularly interesting uh, at the same time you do need to listen to your fans just to find out if they're enjoying what you're doing 
And if they're not, then you do need to adjust. You either need to engage with them, which is always a good idea, or you need to uh, at least take a measure of what they're saying, realign what you're doing. So a lot of people uh, will look at the mistakes White Wolf made in their first couple of years, and they made a few. And, you know, I won't defend those um, mistakes, but they made them and they got better and they will continue to do better. I'm sure of that. I'm not a part of White Wolf now, but I'm sure they will uh, continue to improve. But fans, uh, supporters, buyers, role players will sometimes judge you based on you know, those few foul-ups and they'll just, you know, cast you aside and anything you put out further to that. And that's not exclusive to role-playing. That's uh, in any media, you know. Um, There's been plenty of TV series that were sunk by their second season. Um, The first season, fantastic. Second season, absolute crap. Third season, brilliant. (laughs) I wouldn't know because I never watched it. (laughs) And, you know, Vampire has the same, courts the same risks because it made uh, some cock-ups early on. But I think it's unfair to judge the quality of V5, V5 Camarilla, V5 Anarchs, and Chicago by Night based on mistakes made during playtest documents and questionable hiring choices and things like that. Because... All a business can really do is move on from those mistakes and show that it's learned. Right, right. Well, uh, by that, uh, um, to to kind of dig a little bit deeper in, into that stuff, um, I want to ask you a totally inconsequential question, but it does require you to make a statement, hopefully. Um, okay. What is your least favorite Vampire the Masquerade book? Or perhaps, <laughs> perhaps even your least favorite World of Darkness, classic World of Darkness book? Well, there's an obvious choice. Um, you know, I, I could go for the obvious choice. Most people will say World of Darkness Gypsies. And <laughs> it won't necessarily be because of the content in the book, um, uh, which isn't brilliant um, by my by my tastes, by any stretch. Um, but being Vampire the Masquerade specific, I think, let's look at that. Um, there's there's so many, you know. It's <laughs> as you well know, yes. you know that, and they definitely run the gamut of quality. Because even if we're looking at something like Diablery Mexico, it's that is technically its own book, and it's pretty wafer thin in terms of content and quality. <laughs> it, it it just does what it does, and then you could look at something like Berlin by Night, which is clearly got more more quantity uh, but it's uh, got some very questionable elements that really tone down the the overall quality um my least favorite book that if i was to <laughs> i'm going to go for new orleans by night <laughs> and it's not because it's badly written necessarily. You know, there's some good characters in there. Um, it's, well, there's obviously some huge problems in there, such yep. as, the, you know, the subway in New Orleans famously, which must just 
sink in through the river, I guess. Um, why why the writers decided to put a subway in New Orleans, I don't know. It's almost like they'd never been there. <laughs> um, it's it's a book that is marred by its blandness to my mind i think that's the uh, that's the saving grace for me with berlin by night while it has some dreadful decisions like uh, heinrich himmler tremier anti tribute hermann goering malkavian and so on yeah <laughs> it, and the fourth reich in general i think they're called um and kane in the form of ravnos methuselah those are some pretty heinous inclusions but it has an appeal to me from a sort of gonzo ridiculous okay so this is where second edition's going perspective a little like dirty secrets of the black hand i quite like that book because it's experimental it has a lot of stuff in that you can pick or choose in a way it's the ultimate toolbox book because very little in it is sees reference in future books so you you know, you pick from it, you leave stuff in, fair enough. But New Orleans by Night is presented as a city source book that is canonical and isn't really, there's nothing in it that is terribly exciting. There's nothing in it that's terribly awful. It's just a book I would never use uh, because I would much rather come up with my own cast of interesting vampires in a city that roughly resembles New Orleans rather than the city presented in that book to the point that when it came to Beckett's Jihad Diary and we had a little bit on New Orleans in there, when Neil uh, Raymond Price and I were coming up with the chapters for Beckett's Jihad Diary, we were going through which city source books do we want to revisit. And of course we came up with Milwaukee and DC and a little bit on New York, Chicago was an obvious one. And we put Berlin in, but we didn't put New Orleans in. And when we did do references to New Orleans, we referenced Samdi, Setites, Giovanni, I think. We we went completely in the opposite direction to what was presented in that book. uh, Long-winded answer, but I'm not really uh, good at delivering short ones. That's okay. (laughs) I I, I noticed that I'm sure Bob did too, that... um... New Orleans was sort of referenced uh, in passing as, you know, it, they were able to withstand the Sabbat, but then a hurricane came and wiped them all out. And I think both of us were like, yeah, that's that's good. That'll do. <laughs> there was there was a lot of it that, that had that there. It was also the hodgepodge, right? It's like a vampire book, but the mage faction, the werewolf faction, it was like any one faction wipes out the whole city, but never mm-hmm. the main proponents that kept it there. And it was like, diplomacy has its way where is it and when you leave that kind of open-ended it makes it feel like you know hey play anything and you know it's it fits but it, to me that kind of goes with the subway thing you yeah know, what at what point are you trying to get because because let's let's go back to uh to to a point i had about chicago right you have in there that chicago uh, in the book that I was reading a little bit of the preview i uh, was talking about that chicago seems segregated that that's that that's a theme, and I had to I had to point out to someone, you know, as being a native of Chicago, being here, I was like going, hey, it's actually a good comment because that comment is not only something that was heard in the radio stations discussed as by the society in Chicago. The simple fact is, is any common citizen say, well, yeah, it is. It's not like we're killing anybody, 
for being different, but we have cultural neighborhoods and there's oh. pride in those said neighborhoods. And for the first time that the original Chicago by night didn't do that you do now is that you not only capture that it, it there's a, there's a point of pride is what I'm trying to drive through. Uh, but there's also a level of offensive sensitivity uh, that exists nowadays that you have to kind of tiptoe around as entertainers and writers. And, you know, you brought it up at the fourth Reich in Berlin, maybe, eh. <laughs> it's a little maybe, maybe right. Maybe yeah. avoid that a bit. Or my, to my question, is there a way that in Chicago by night or anything else that you try to tackle that material to make it tasteful? Or is that just never go near it? Um, that that's a I guess a complex question because as we know, uh, it's a hot button issue, especially with politics as it is today in America and elsewhere around the world, but especially in America. And dealing with the far right in any fictional narrative is is a minefield. Um, can it be done? Yes. Uh, can it be done tastefully? That's a different question. <laughs> uh, I, I would say it can. Um, uh, believe me, politically speaking, I, I'm fully in favor that all Nazis should be punched, silenced. You know, I, I'm not a. Uh, I believe in freedom of speech, but I also believe in the freedom to um, not have to listen. Uh, so. <laughs> The, the stance RPG Net recently took with banning anyone who speaks up in favor of Donald Trump on their website. Well, I don't see a problem with that. They're a private company. They can ban whoever they want. Plenty of far-right businesses ban whoever they like. But um, the, the, issue, the idea of, let's say, presenting the Fourth Reich in V5 uh, isn't something I would do for many, many years, um, I would want to gauge the real-world temperature. I would definitely, if I was to include them, portray them as antagonists. Because, And this is for the simple reason. It isn't because there's a black and white of politics. Because while a lot of people on the far right, and you could, and a lot of people would, argue that if you're that far right you're a pretty nasty individual um you know there's, there's certainly different reasons that characters might might align themselves with that kind of organization but let's call it what it is it's loathsome so you shouldn't have protagonists in there but you shouldn't just portray them as um again as i say black and white simple antagonists it's better to use uh, use a game as a learning tool, essentially. Demonstrate their reasons. If they're hateful, demonstrate them. Make the protagonists hate those characters as much as the players probably do. And it shouldn't be a great stretch to make Nazi characters hateful because <laughs> players hate Nazis. So if you take your average vampire coterie, you have a you have your Bruja biker, you have your Toreador artist, you have your Ventru stockbroker, and you have your Malkavian who's just escaped from the asylum. It's a stereotypical coterie. It couldn't get much more stereotypical than this. Now, your those characters, your stockbroker, he's in favor, let's say, of free market capitalism. He likes it when the economy's running. 
he may have some dubious views that the socialist Bruha biker disagrees with, but damn it, he always delivers the goods on time. One thing he can't stand is totalitarianism because it completely freezes up the market, stops free trade, and clamps down on private industry, let's say. So the stockbroker hates the Nazis. The Bruhar biker, he's a rebel, of course, because he's a Bruhar. He hates the Nazis as well, because they're trying to clamp down on his freedom. The Malkavian is insane. He's just escaped from an asylum because, again, he's a stereotype. He hates the Nazis because the Nazis aren't going to be terribly nice to people like him who suffer a debilitative condition. And so it goes. It's, it's, not, it's not a massive stretch to portray Nazis as villains in a game, um, which is how they should be portrayed, because characters by default should not be sympathetic to a Nazi's point of view. If you're, char- if you're playing characters who are, I would question the rest of the coterie. Uh, I think this was, this was something that came up when all that V5 um, controversy was on fire. Because I wrote the clan sections for V5, and one of, the, um, one of the lines which I confess should have received greater context was regarding clan Bruja and the kinds of mortals they might embrace. And it has like um, extreme leftist, extreme right. And the fact that they were put in the same breath really upset some people. And again, I hold my hands up. I should have put this in a better context. I wasn't advertising them as playable. I was saying that the Bruja enjoy embracing activists, and not all activists are left-wing. They may not be nice activists. They may not be acting on your behalf, but they believe they're acting on someone's behalf, probably their own. So do they exist in the universe? Yes. Um, Should they be in a game? Well, that entirely depends on on how they're being framed. But as I made the point back then, if one of your players is absolutely determined to play a Nazi in the group, and for some reason the storyteller allows that, there is no reason that the other four vampires in that coterie should tolerate it. If that character is going around in jackboots or or is is a subtle Nazi and is silently persecuting people, but they're aware of it, they shouldn't stand for it because you wouldn't stand for it when you're alive. So why would you stand for it when you're dead? Right. And so they should be making that character's life miserable. And if the player has signed up for a miserable experience, then all power to them. But if the player finds, hang on, this is miserable, I wanted to play a Nazi and get away with being a Nazi, well, then you've got a problem with the player. Right. Because, you know, that speaks to a completely different agenda at the gaming table. I know, again, that's a very convoluted answer, but it's the the simple answer is no, they shouldn't be playable. But (laughs) you can look at... Uh, you can look at a lot of very problematic subject matter and look at how it can be presented in any fictional narrative, whether it's in the form of a game, a TV show, a movie, what have you. You can make them black and white Gestapo, Indiana Jones, Nazis, and just you know enjoy punching them in the face, and that's absolutely fine. Or you can have them as different characters who have become Nazis for various different reasons, but 
when it comes down to it, they're Nazis. They made their choice, and they need to be treated appropriately. The um, part two to that is that do you ever feel that as a as a writer created for for horror that you may start with Nazis, but there's something more sinister about them? Like for instance, I had it put put to me that you know, hey, they allowed Nazis in their Zemisi revised because the beginning story talks about freezing in tanks and how the Zemis comes in is basically skinning them uh, to make an environment out of them. That's, that's okay. But that Zemis himself believes in a very, a super being, a very Nazi concept, which was, which was there. And to that question, I just paused because in my head as a horror fan, I've always felt that the nature of the being is what is the focus. And I was wondering if you have a, I mean, is that a differing opinion? Like, is that the point where it's like, you know, you got to decide between is this being horrific, entertaining, or am I just being political and just avoid it because it's a red button? Well, politics is going to be present in pretty much any medium uh, you you portray. Politics is everywhere in the way you act, the way you talk to people. Uh, in terms of the way it's, it's presented in horror and could we go worse than Nazis? Yes, but that's that again, to go back to vulgarity. You've got to look at the reason you're trying to be horrific. You've got to look at the kind of horror you're trying to portray. If I was running a game set on an a, on a space station, and there was an alien going around hunting people, it would seem pretty incongruous to throw a bunch of SS <laughs> soldiers in there as well. Um, but at the same time, if I was setting a game in Second World War, and for whatever reason... Um, the Gestapo were hunting people in my town and aliens came down and the aliens were more viscerally horrible than the Nazis. You could, you could definitely see a story take place where the resistance teams with the horrible Nazis to fight against the worst threat. But I've got to be honest, I hate that kind of thing because it diminishes the, the, the actual human horror of what these kinds of people did. Um, you you were right in the clan book Zimmy C revised. There's that. It's an excellent piece of fiction with the uh, the Germans uh, Panzer Division uh, in Stalingrad or nearby. And likewise, there's there are Nazi characters presented. There's a Confederate soldier, I think, in mm-hmm. one of the clan book yeah, Bruhas. The Bruha there's... clan book revised has uh, one at the. Uh, it's one of the um, example characters. Yeah, and I've, I'm fairly certain there's um, another one in at least another in another clan book. But point is, we've moved on right from the '90s and 2001 when that clan book was released, and our sensibilities have changed, our society has changed, and there will be some people that look at us and say, "Oh, well, you've grown too soft, or you've grown too sensitive," but. The reality is we are more aware now of the danger of people like this being taken as uh, not serious because we're seeing a rise of that kind of behavior again. And this isn't me getting on my political soapbox. I think most people are aware and a lot of creatives are aware because creatives tend to be left-leaning. They're not always left-leaning, but they tend to be, that there's a definite uh, lean to the extremes right now in politics today and that means you've got to be very careful and very intelligent about when you decide to put nazis into a game and therefore when you decide i want to put something in that's worse 
the Nazis. Are you, by doing that, diminishing how awful Nazis actually are? As a Mitzi can be horrible without even involving Nazis. You know, you don't need to put them in a game to make Nazis horrific. No, I, I don't think uh, at any point in time as a storyteller, I've been like, you know what would make my game better? Um, some fascists. Uh, it's just, I mean, exploring the the nature of vampires um, uh, and humanity as a whole, um, I just don't feel like I've, I've ever really needed to include that. Um, but um, I definitely wouldn't do it in a way that was like a glorifying of that behavior. No, no, you want to show them for being the CD uh, degenerates that they actually are. Um, I mean, I, I've i definitely used them in a game in an antagonistic or supporting fashion. Um, I, you're probably familiar with the series True Detective. Yes. Yep. And um, there's the fantastic episode where um, the names of the characters, Marty and the other character, um <laughs> Matthew McConaughey. Oh uh, uh Rust. Uh, yeah, they um, they go undercover into what is basically a biker bar for the Aryan Brotherhood or Aryan Nations or whatever they're calling themselves now. And um they're mixing with an awful lot of very unpleasant what appear to be white supremacists. And you know, they, those same sorts of characters appear in um Sons of Anarchy and right. Breaking Bad in the latter seasons. And I use that. The, the true detective scene in a game of werewolf that I ran, which has its own baggage when it comes down to uh, things like white supremacists or blood supremacists and use that entire, you know, you have to discreetly work your way into here. And as predicted, the werewolf pack couldn't take the sheer amount of vitriol that these people were wallowing in. And they went completely, um, well, rage-filled and tore the bar apart. It was very satisfying. They didn't get the information they were after, but at the end of it, when they were picking chunks of flesh out of their hair, <laughs> they felt, okay, there's some other avenues we can look yeah. into. They'll be more difficult, but I'd say this was worth it. Well, yeah, I, I, uh, I think that uh, like in a modern context, like in that regard, like what you're referring to, I, I, I think Bob and I both would use that without concern because they're you know that's that's what's happening in the real world like there are shitty asshole people like that um so we we don't we wouldn't stray away from that um but like the specific like you know ss nazi experience i just think basically the point is um you can use people that are villainous and you can do it tastefully without glorifying them and like sort of making them on the right side of things without much difficulty. Mm. Hold, hold true to the villainy they have. I think one of the favorite things I've enjoyed about uh, the whole entire experience with vampire is the fact that it's a world of darkness. Things are darker. So to me that always said, follow the logic. What a, a Nazi in the world of darkness should be way worse than the ones in the, in the real world, in my opinion. But should you bring that to your player troop? And is that the experience required for the story at that point? And that's, that's always what's in my head as a guiding light. Oh, so, um, so that's an interesting, uh, this is an interesting thing to have a conversation about because not many people just want to chat about it. But 
the idea of um, it being a world of darkness, therefore you can present Nazis, but they need to be worse, is an interesting perspective. I don't necessarily agree with it. I think that they are bad enough. Uh, I don't think they need dressing up to make them any worse. But I can certainly see your point of view that if everything in World of Darkness is basically dialed up to 11 in the evil stakes, then Nazis are even worse than they are today. I think if it's uh, fair to state, I have no idea how to make a Nazi worse, which is probably the better statement, which yeah, is all well, I have to use in. Yeah, and that's the, that's the thing that I fall back on. Uh, I think if I really wanted to use them as antagonists in the game, which I've got to be honest, hasn't really happened um, in any kind of focal way, it would be more to illustrate that they don't need vampires, werewolves, or mages among them to make them horrible. Right. You know, that, that it should be the Jack the Ripper in London by Night uh, treatment. That uh, I, There's a sidebar in that book, as I'm sure you know, that says, what is Jack the Ripper? Is he a Malkavian? Is he a, or is he a hermetic mage that's gone a bit mad for body parts? Um, but no, the scary thing is he was mortal all along. And there's a few books that do that. Um, and frankly, I consider most um, characters that you'd use in this sort of vein of Nazis in that, uh, that bracket. Um, you don't need to make them supernatural to make them abominable people. Right. Yeah, that's, that's uh, so let's, let's, uh, let's get a little bit more lighthearted. Um, cause that's yeah, Chicago by nine. It's on Kickstarter. <laughs> right. Right now. <laughs> you should, you if should you, back it. If you like my points of view, you'll love this book. <laughs> it has no Nazis. Um, so real quick question. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm led to believe that you're a fan of pro wrestling. Um, so I have to ask you the most logical question. What's your favorite pro wrestler? Ah, hmm. Good question. Uh, of all time or who is uh, wrestling to this day? I, well, you know, uh, whatever, whatever answer you want to give me. So a wrestler whose matches I can go back to and watch again and again would probably be Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig. Not shocked at all. <laughs> um, that man could toss a towel effectively Um, and I guess his counterpart who had many great matches with him would be Bret Hart who is also fantastic and I guess there's that somewhat rose tinted because would someone like Mr. Perfect or Bret Hitman Hart have a fantastic match with the kind of wrestlers, sports entertainers pal that are in WWE today, maybe not. Um, Bret Hart's matches were incredibly psychological based. You know, it was all about building a story, targeting a limb, that kind of thing. There was lots of tricks and um, back and uh, roll ups and so on. You don't really see that anymore. Yeah, uh, but definitely looking back to my childhood, those two stuck with me um who is your favorite wrestler today i will go a little off the wall and say tyler breeze fair enough fair enough who is uh a tag team wrestler yep but when he was in nxt as uh, tyler breeze on his own uh, i used to find him a fantastic heel a heel i would const a heel in wrestling parlance as a bad guy but i would um 
No, that's for the sake of the listeners. I'm sure you're both aware. But I, he was a heel I would root for because he would just constantly lose. But I thought he carried off the gimmick of being such a, a vain model character like Rick the Model Martel and every other um, arrogant character. He did it spectacularly well. He uh, latched on to the, I guess, modern technology of having a mobile phone on the end of a selfie stick and broadcasting him walking down the aisle onto the big screen above his head as he was walking down the aisle. That was a, a fantastic gimmick. And also, he's a remarkably great wrestler. Uh, sorry, I keep saying wrestler. Sports entertainer. <laughs> Well, yeah, I still call them wrestlers. I, <laughs> I don't, I don't buy into that. Uh, it's, it's great that 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 they have that label, but I don't buy into that. Um, <laughs> do you want to, uh, do you want to move on to some Patreon questions, Bob? That's exactly where I was going to go. Man, are we on the oh, same page? Before you do, before you do, I'm yes, going to rudely interrupt. Um, because you know, I'm obviously on here to sell something. Yes, uh, I would be here even if I was. Uh, I hasten to add. But one thing I just wanted to say about Chicago by Night before we move on to the Patreon questions mm-hmm. is not only is the author cast of uh, Chicago by Night a fantastic crew, uh, any award winner, Chris Spivey is one of our authors, and uh, Crystal Mazur, who is also an Any Award winner. And that's the um, role playing industry awards of note. Um, we have so many brilliant writers of different backgrounds, whether cultural, ethnic, gender. We have Chicago natives writing for the book, which you pointed out about the um, segregated nature of Chicago. That chapter was written by Mike Tomasek, who is who lives in Chicago. That was very important that we got a Chicagoan to write that chapter. Um, but importantly, the characters in the book as well are hugely diverse. One of the biggest problems of previous city source books is they never really gave an accurate representation of what cities look like. They were almost all white, almost all attractive. And Chicago by Night, this edition, is probably the most realistic city source book you will have ever seen in terms of its makeup. So to some people, that's not going to be a selling point. But to me, it makes it a, a step above where city source books used to be. But on top of that, we also have the La Sombra joining um, the the party. This is the book where Clan La Sombra is first detailed, where their discipline is first detailed for V5. Uh, it is a book that has even more lore sheets for you to use for V5. It has loads of chronicle hooks, one big chronicle to go in the back. It has coteries, how to build new coteries, coteries that exist in the city. There's loads of stuff that I don't have time to go into now. But (laughs) I do implore you, listeners, check out Chicago by Night on Kickstarter, if you haven't already. And back high, because there is only one, at the time of recording, there's only one more decide the fate of backer level. And this was a backer level I put in personally. You can decide the fate of a character from a previous Chicago by Night book who isn't detailed in the book yet. The three characters we put on, and if all three go, I might put some more up, but the characters we put on were Capone, Eletria, and Maxwell. Capone went early. 
is back level. Clearly, someone is very keen on deciding what happens to Al Capone. Electria went today. Maxwell is still up for grabs. And some people will look at that and think, well, I don't really want to just pay to um, decide on the fate of a character. This gets you involved in the creative process. You'll get to work with me on an upcoming book where we will decide what has basically happened to your character. Uh, so, but please back at that level or back at one of the levels where you can put an NPC in a book uh, because it really is worth it. That's how I got into this industry, really. It's what I did with Book of the Worm. I backed a level to become a consulting developer. And it was by getting my foot in the door, seeing how the process worked, seeing the kind of drafts that developers were looking for, and getting some work of my own edited by the developer on that book that allowed me to then think, okay, I know exactly what to submit for Mummy the Curse. And so I did. I got hired on Mummy the Curse. That was my first paid gig. And since then, it's been nothing but paid work. Well, that's uh, so. I appreciate you mentioning that because that's one of the questions I was going to ask you. And ah, you, you all right. Well, yeah, let's get on to these uh, Patreon questions. Then. Well, uh, actually, I, real quick, before we do that, I just want to make a comment. Um, looking at the Kickstarter um well let's let's go back so um at gen con they announced that um that onyx path was going to be doing chicago by night and um i for one was immediately excited i was like oh oh man i'm i'm freaking out because um i really felt that onyx path had proven itself um as far as like the quality of material that they were they were putting out um and so i was very excited in that regard um and i was also excited because uh you know like chicago for me and bob that's like where we you know where we're from and it's where we've spent the most time as far as this game is concerned um you know it's where we grew up both of us so um you know so i was very excited but then I kind of like forgot about it, right? It just, you know, kind of like went to the side as life goes on. And then I saw the artwork that you had posted on Facebook and I about lost my shit because the artwork that has been presented so far. Yeah, that's is, a positive, by the way. It is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is amazing. Like I, I have to I have to give who whoever was in charge of collecting that artwork and approving that artwork and, and um, really um, bringing it into that new book. Some people have been very critical about the artwork in V5. Personally, I, for one, I enjoy it. I think it's very good. I, I really like how they've modernized the artwork. But what we're seeing here, as far as what's been presented for Chicago by Night, it's still artwork. It's still paintings, drawings, but it's really realistic looking and it presents those characters that we're familiar with in a totally new light. And I was like, Oh my God, that's what that character looks like. Holy shit. How did they accomplish that? So I just wanted to give you a compliment. Um, if you're involved in that process, uh, I, I put my stamp of approval on it. Uh, I am involved in the art process very remotely. So I give the art notes so I have to write down how I want characters to look. Uh, or if the writers have handily done that for me in the uh, character write-ups, I will just copy and paste their text. And that will go over to the art director, Onyx Path, that's Mike Cheney. 
um, and Mike is responsible for hiring artists. Sometimes I will refer artists on to him, but he has a pretty good stable and he's always looking for more artists. If you're listening to this and you're a decent artist, give it a go, submit, uh, look on the onyxpath.com. We have submission guidelines for both writers and artists, and we're always looking for more. But uh, there's a couple of new artists, in fact, a few new artists for V5 Chicago, and I have never worked for Onyx Path before. And some of the work you've seen, I'm sure, uh, for instance, um, a lot of people have been a big fan of the Porsche slash Helena art mm-hmm. for V5, which is the uh, lady with the leather jacket. Um, which she's wearing, if I recall, in Chicago by Night First Edition as well, except she's wearing a pair of shades as well. Right. Um, that's by a new artist for us, Amy Wilkins, who has really been knocking it out of the park. And I have no doubt we will be trying to hire for, for further uh, vampire portraits. But yeah, I am likewise very impressed by the art i've been seeing for chicago it it's one of the most joyous things as a writer and developer to to see is how an artist interprets your work it's you know one thing to write it down and see it printed on the page but when my writers on this book get to see how artists have depicted their characters they will they will love it i have no doubt my my one question i had was it's on art is that does Kevin Jackson update his dollar sign in his head to a Bitcoin? <laughs> uh, Kevin Jackson, I believe, will have completely shaved his head um, because he has moved out of the early 90s. <laughs> he doesn't have a Nike tick um, on his head, no dollar sign, no Bitcoin. Somebody uh, actually asked uh, on our Discord server, somebody was like, do you, do you think uh, Kevin Jackson still has a dollar sign? And I was like, it's a safe assumption to go no. <laughs> he may have been embraced with that on his head <laughs> which would be the ultimate yeah it could be a tattoo I guess yeah that would suck Genghis has got a tattoo on the side of his head I'm he's just... allowed though he bakes muffins for his neighbors I mean that's a good guy yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, come on by and uh, we'll watch basketball <laughs> now Genghis goes to the jazz club with uh, Du Sable and uh Two old hands. Um, is there anybody uh, in that book that's going to be gone? That is, go- I, I guess I shouldn't even be asking this because then it wouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> but um, I'm just curious: is there anybody like um, that uh, in the ensuing years that was maybe in the um, previous books that has like met an untimely death? Yes, that's all I need to know. Um, I'm sure everyone will mourn the loss of Jacob Schumpeter, uh, <laughs> but he is gone. <laughs> Relatively recently. Um, but no, there's there's a few. And uh, most of them I try and leave with nebulous endings because you know storytellers like to carry over characters from their previous chronicles. And some people dislike it when books tell them one thing and they've been running it another. So, for instance, Dickie Fulcher uh, is uh, one of the Kaitiv, uh from both first and second edition. He isn't in this book, but I think it's in Maldavis's write-up. It says that he uh, succumbed to torpor. He thought, you know what, this heat is getting too hot. I'm, I'm not dealing with this, and so he succumbed to torpor. In Edward Neely's write-up, it says that 
at least as a rumor, that he assassinated Dicky Fulcher on behalf of the Sabbats, along with various other prominent anarchs and Camarilla figures. So whether that means he put him in torpor or he found Dicky Fulcher in torpor and just finished the job, um, it, it's open to interpretation. I think there's a similar one like Capone in Edward in Edward Neely again. Uh, Edward Neely's background it says that he um, sealed Capone in a drum, I think, and dumped him in <laughs> in the river or the lake. Um, but given that one of the backer levels on the Kickstarter is decide the fate of Capone, he might pop out of that barrel like a pop up pirate. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you want to um, ask some of these uh, Patreon questions, Bob? Absolutely. Our first uh, Patreon question comes from Juanita Nesbitt and uh, asks, how do you feel about the Chicago by Night being funded in just two days? Uh, it was, in fact, less than that. I think it was in about 13 hours, and I was very pleased. It's always a risk, honestly, with the source book. Onyx Path has got a good track record of core books doing very, very well on Kickstarter. And sourcebooks generally do as well. Uh, there hasn't been one, you know, tempting fate now. There hasn't been one Onyx Path Kickstarter yet that hasn't met its funding goal. But Chicago was a sourcebook for a new edition of a game. And we didn't know how well it would do. We certainly had hopes. But it's very gratifying to see a book fund so quickly. And I know, you know, it's not really down to my work. It's partly down to the uh, cachet that Vampire the Masquerade already has. But I think combined with the artwork that we had on display immediately, I think that really helped convince a lot of people who were on the fence. William West, because it ties into this, William West asked, uh, do you think crowdfunding is the model going forward for RPG content? And the company produces the core rule set and then allows creative content to be produced under their label using crowdfunding? Um, I'd, uh, that will depend on the company. I think there's a lot of merit to it. Onyx Path certainly benefits from it. Uh, Monty Cook Games also does very well by crowdfunding. But if you look over the other side of the aisle, I guess, at uh, Paizo, Wizards of the Coast, at White Wolf itself, they haven't crowdfunded anything. And I, I think there's plenty of other games that haven't either. So it's, I wouldn't say it's too early to tell, but it depends on your business model. Part of the benefits of crowdfunding for a company like Onyx Path, Onyx Path doesn't have a warehouse. Most uh, RPG companies don't these days. So they're not going to produce 2,000 books and store them and hope that they sell. Kickstarter is a very effective method and other crowdfunding platforms, are very effective methods of gauging interest and printing to demand. And, you know, not being left with hundreds of books left to sell. So in that regard, I think it's very sensible. One thing Onyx Path isn't, it isn't reliant on crowdfunding. And that's a common misnomer. A lot of people seem to think that uh, companies like Onyx Path, Monty Cook, need Kickstarter in order to sell and that's proven to be not the case with drive through RPG and Monty Cook's selling from its own website. They in both do very good numbers, even without the Kickstarter. But Kickstarter is a very good burst of energy. It builds enthusiasm for games. It also allows the production of deluxe versions of books, which you wouldn't get in a normal print run. So 
Um, I don't think it's the future. I think it may be for some companies, but others will find the regular retail run and selling online is perfectly sufficient. CT Phipps wants to know if um, we are going to see any surprise characters like Lucida with the Lissamber introduction in Chicago by Night. Uh, I know Charles is a massive fan of Chicago by Night, so I'm glad he's asked that question. I think I've actually already answered this for him on a forum uh, that Lucita isn't in uh, Chicago by Night. However, Tally is. And, oh, um, good man. Good man. Yeah. <laughs> My pleasure, old boy. <laughs> but he's, uh, to me now, Tally has kind of become the La Sombra James Bond, which is a bit of an issue. Um, because the way he's depicted in all the old clan novels, he's constantly going around wearing a suit. He's kind of got shades hanging out of his uh, front pocket. He's always immaculately dressed, speaks in a posh British accent. He's an asshole, And and yet a a lovable one. Um, There's interesting things afoot for Tally in Chicago 5th edition because... What I will say is Tally's a character who is very much defined by being the loyal servant. He is almost, he's a butler assassin, for want of a better term. For 700 years, he's been serving Clan La Sombra in all its forms, completely loyally, and doesn't see a problem with that. Uh, it could be because he's just a cold blooded sociopath, uh, but it could also be because he's pragmatic enough to know that if I keep greasing the wheel um i will get everything that i want without ever being toppled because i'm not holding an archbishopric i'm not a cardinal i'm not a regent no one's going to try to kill me they're just going to keep hiring me and to an extent that has been true come this edition and when you see what's going on with the la sombra in this edition his previously unassailable position as i guess la sombra hitman for hire it may no longer be quite so secure. Oh, I want that book now. That's all I know. But uh, <laughs> it's my favorite clan. But uh, William Carson asks, what do you look for in writers when planning for a book that is an update to an existing one versus a brand new book? Hmm. Uh, existing knowledge of the setting is quite important. It's not integral uh, because there's usually something in every single book that a new writer, brand new to the game, can add. Um, otherwise we'd constantly hire the same writers over and over again. But that that is important for something like Chicago, which is very much a flagship source book. We need people who knew Vampire. Some of them didn't, but most of them did. Um, in, a, in the case of Chicago by Night, we needed, I felt we needed uh, at least a handful of writers who lived in Chicago or knew Chicago uh, incredibly well. And we have those too. Um, one thing I would say I've learned is that um, although V5 is a new game and I would expect the writers to learn the system before writing it this is a funny thing for me to realise it's the benefit of running a playtest for those writers before we start writing (laughs) so they can feel completely embedded in the setting um, because some people, uh, and I'm not throwing any writers under the bus here because I've done it as well, 
Some people will come to a new edition of a game and will write as if it's for the old edition of the game. They'll still maintain that tone. And you need to understand that with every single edition of Vampire the Masquerade, there has been a different tone. And V5 especially has its own. And so that was something that got bled out through red lines. I was able to advise the writers, okay, you need to adjust this, adjust that. And in retrospect, I would have made sure they were all aware of it before we started writing rather than halfway through the process. Andreas Anderson uh, asks, what do you feel about the new direction of the Sabbat and the fact that they're not included as a playable faction from the start, unlike the Camarilla and the Anarchs? Do you know how long it will be until a book dedicated to the Sword of Cain is released? Oh, I think that's about three questions. Uh, in terms of the new direction of the Sabbat, I like them as terrifying bogeymen that that appeals to me i like uh the sabbat to be i think they're described in vampire the masquerade bloodlines on a loading screen as a medieval blood cult or medieval <laughs> death cult and that's pretty much all you ever hear about what the sabbat are <laughs> and i like that air of mystery i like that to be a mystery around independent clans as well because they're supposed to be fairly few and far between or self-involved so do I like the Gehenna Crusade? Uh, I think that it provides new opportunities for play. I will be interested to see how it plays out in the setting. Um, how do I feel about the Sabat not being in the core book? I'm actually fine with that. I like that V5 has a tight focus on Camarilla and Anarchs first, because for me, Vampire is a game about humanity, tragedy of losing it, struggling to retain it, and so on. And when you throw the Sabbat in there, you automatically dilute that. Now, Sabbat are still incredibly fun to play. I've ran Sabbat Chronicles, and I will continue to do so. But I think if you are trying to pitch a game as this is a game about humanity and struggling with its loss, having the Sabbat as a playable option distracts you from that. The same way having the Giovanni in such a game distracts you from that because they are so wrapped up in their own agenda that you can't really play one with the rest of the clans without fundamentally changing the clan. Right. Um, in terms of do I know when a Sabbat book is coming out, I do not. Uh, I do not know who would be publishing it. I am fairly confident it will not be White Wolf Entertainment. Uh, I think they will go to a third party, uh, whether that's Onyx Path or someone else. I couldn't say, but I have no doubt there will be a Sabbat book coming quite soon in, in the great scheme of things. Um, Rothen, go ahead. No, it's all good. No. All right. Rowdy asks if there's any indication of when sources, books or otherwise, for the other sects will come out. Also, there's two um, clans ever mentioned in Beckett's Shahad Diary, the sect of uh, Voodoo Necromancers in New Orleans in uh, the War Across Dixie, and then the Bloodlines, uh, the Omega. And are those going to be clan books or retouched on from uh, Becca Shad Diary? Uh, I certainly hope they will both be touched on. Um, in terms of other sex books, let's deal with those first. Um, so far, uh, all I can really say about what Onyx Path have on their plate is Chicago by Night, the Chicago Dossiers, which is a Becca's Jihad Diary-like book, which we funded via stretch goals on Chicago, and Let the Streets Run Red, which is a big Chronicles book for set in Chicago and then more broadly um, 
Michigan, um, Wisconsin, Indiana, etc. Um, so it's actually going to take in the domains of Milwaukee and Indianapolis if we hit enough stretch goals on that, which would be nice. And I have long wanted to do a book about uh, setting Vampire the Masquerade in a rural environment, in a small yeah. farming community, and seeing how a vampire cult may operate in a, a region like that. And Indiana is uh, particularly good for that. Illinois is particularly good for that. Um, so those three books, Chicago, Streets Run Red, and The Dossier are good to go as, as soon as they're written, of course, uh, or art is produced for them. Other books, there is nothing I can confirm. That doesn't mean nothing exists, but I'm think it's fairly open that White Wolf Entertainment are intending on dealing with other licensing partners, not just Onyx Path. So I may not be privy to every single piece of information about who's producing what book. Um, in terms of the voodoo sect or voodoo sect and the Omega cult of Bloodlines, uh, as I say, I certainly hope they receive coverage. If I had my way, there would be an entire book of uh, cults and um, because of Methuselah worship, ancestor worship, and so on, and the clan of death in its many forms, the Hecata would appear in there. But we will have to see and uh, yeah, see what White Wolf approve and well, what I can write outlines for basically. All right, uh, last question before we wrap up um, Tony McMahon. Um, wants to know uh, who do you find to be the scariest character in the world of darkness and why? Hmm. Scariest character in the world of darkness. Gosh, that's that's a question I don't think I have ever considered. Because, you know, the obvious would be someone like uh, Vikos or, uh, you know, a, a horrible monstrous as you mean to see with a fetus attached to the side of his head or something <laughs> right. like that. Um, but that's fairly obvious. I've always loved the Pentex board of directors. I find the mundanity of human evil more terrifying than most tentacle monsters. And I find characters like Adrian Newbury, who is a Pentex director, uh, quite horrifying. And Chase Lamont is quite horrifying because they are, for all intents and purposes, just humans who have made awful awful deals for things like eternal life just a little bit more power and have basically screwed the world over underneath them for the sake of it which is a lovely analogy for what we are dealing with day to day in real world in the real world um in terms of characters let's see scary characters so scary maybe i wouldn't even want to encounter them in a game um hmm, there's some content in some of the old Wraith the Oblivion books, and I love Wraith, that I would never want to make players face without a great deal of prep, guidelines, warnings, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And while I can't name one in particular, the Neverborn have always been fairly horrifying to me, and so I've included them occasionally. I think they appear in Becker's Jihad Diary as well. Um, they uh, appear slightly in Wraith, they appear more so in Orpheus, and they are a horrible concept. 
that lives beneath the underworld. So there you go. All right. Well, for Thank me, you. it's CrossFit cults. I just wanted to add. It's, it's what? It's CrossFit cults. CrossFit cults. <laughs> They're terrifying. But that's different reasons. Sorry, I just wanted to. <laughs> well, and that's cool. probably something Magadon Pharmaceuticals sponsors. <laughs> well, um, Zumba classes. The, <laughs> I, I've I've always had a um a very deep affinity for um the Pentex and uh I'm not I'm not a big werewolf player, but I've always been deeply fascinated by Pentex and just the worm in general. Um so it's part of the reason why I had a appreciation for your writing. So there you go. Thank you very much. My my writing reeks of the worm. <laughs> I I do put Pentex in everything I write. You'll find Pentax in Chicago by night. Um, I will never name them as Pentax, but I use them as Pentax is supposed to be used, which is if your characters ever stop off a gas station, it will be an Endron gas station. If they ever duck into a restaurant, it's no Tollies. If they, you know, and so on and so forth. Use the Pentax subsidiaries as if they are part of the world. Wow, never use that's... McDonald's, never use Texaco. Okay. Always use um the Pentex equivalent, and that means when you do finally run a werewolf game and your pack discovers these companies work for Pentex, they realize how awfully insidious Pentex is. And I think that's what makes them scary. Uh, that's that's very interesting because that's uh, I think that's kind of the standard operating procedure for the both of us as storytellers as well. It, it absolutely is. Fantastic. <laughs> There's Magadon, I think, is the most hated company right now in our online game. <laughs> and fact, all they're doing is giving free inoculations to the homeless. I mean, that's it. <laughs> I'm sure there's no side effects. None. <laughs> well, um, so last thing I want to ask you before we wrap up, um, I've heard a rumor that you're going to be at Midwinter um, in Milwaukee in January. Is this accurate? I will. I will be freezing my uh, any digits that i don't have wrapped up in about four layers of thermals off in milwaukee in january at midwinter well we will be there as well so um i would just like to present you with the option if you're there and we're there at the same time and there is time we would love to have you sit down with us and record a podcast in person Oh, I would love to. Uh, I am sure we'll be able to find the opportunity to do that. It may not be as long as this one, but I'm sure we'll find the opportunity. <laughs> okay. Well, of course. Yeah, this one's this one's running a little bit long. But um, anyways, um, I would like to say thank you for being on our podcast and talking with us and talking with all of our fans. And, um, you know, Bob, if you have anything. I, I would say you're, you're a gentleman. <laughs> you're, you're an outstanding guy to talk with. The gentleman. Uh, the gentleman and i think i think it's amazing fun fun guy um and i hope all our fans listening reach out uh give messages and i'll do praises to the guy for the hard effort that uh chicago by night and the slew of other books he's done that i happen to uh not have paid attention that you actually did it but we'll pay closer attention because i own them some of them in triplicate yeah that's how much of a oh, fan really? i am of them oh absolutely i i think uh, that uh we we might have a a problem where we we don't necessarily pay attention to the authors so much we just consume the material right and um one of the things that we've done as a podcast is is like take a deeper look into who's actually writing the material and now we're we're realizing like oh these are people we can talk to these are like people that are somewhat accessible and also sometimes willing to talk to us so um it's all about learning right <laughs> oh definitely uh, it's 
it's an interesting thing um, because in today's day and age, authors, artists, and the like are more accessible than they ever have been before. So because of Facebook and other such social media. So now that when people look at credits lists, they sometimes look those authors up. And I was in the exact same place as you when I first started getting into these books and really started looking at them. I never read the credits page because for all I knew, I was never going to encounter these people. It was only in the last, I guess, five or six years or so, or six or seven years that I really started caring about who was writing the books, which may have been a bit inconsiderate of me, but it was what it was. Right. And, uh, you know, for us, like we didn't even really, we, there was no way for us to really differentiate, you know, we, it wasn't like we, we wouldn't go looking for a Matthew Dawkins book. You know, we would just look for uh, the new Onyx path book and whoever wrote it, whatever, that's not, you know, it's, it's a white wolf book. So that's what we're doing. But like, we've had to become more savvy and, you know, for us, our goal is to hopefully help other people become more savvy. So, um, Give credit where credit's due is the right exactly exactly because you know like you said um, just sort of as an offhand comment you're not necessarily gonna get kickbacks from those books but it's good that you get credit that people know who you are and you know for anybody who's who's writing or doing artwork getting that that credit just the 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 nod that you've done something that other people like you know sometimes that's that's more than any monetary um kickback you could ever get so well you say that but i do have a paypal and if you want to pay to it i <laughs> receive that money <laughs> all righty well thank you for joining us thank you for being on the podcast and uh next week we will be back with our regularly scheduled podcast um we will be doing a uh, an in-depth review of the hunters hunted 2 um, which i am hard at work reading as we speak for the second time and, um, uh, the week after that, we will not have a podcast because I will be in Austin, Texas at, uh, a night in question or the night in question rather. Um, and then we'll be back the week after that with our regularly scheduled program. Um, anything you'd like to add before we go? Me? Anybody? Um, well, I didn't work on Hunters Hunted too, but I did enjoy it. Um, I think the first book you will be getting to, to that I worked on is probably V20 True Black Hand. Mm -hmm. So I will be listening attentively to hear how you slice and dice that book up. <laughs> I, would, I would like to say firsthand, and I would let you know up front, I, I have not traditionally been a fan of the True Hand book. However, I own two versions of the V21. Oh, really? And I, I mean, not two versions, but I own two copies of it. And I got to tell you, I think it's because, Nate, I think you left one. I did. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. But I, I actually do uh, like content in that book that we'll get to in the podcast. But the, uh, the final thing I want to say for everybody listening from, from Bob here in this podcast, the Chicago by Night Kickstarter, pre-order it, get double of it. I've been seeing previews. You know, I've been getting kicked uh, info here and there as I've been combing over looking for it. I haven't been this passionate obsessed about a book in a long time. Uh, for the release. And I love, I love Beckett's Shahad Diary. And this is, this is something you want to get into and not miss out on. Would the two of you like to ask me one question each about Chicago by night before we terminate? Uh, I'm going to let Bob I am obliged to answer. I do. <laughs> I do. Tell me what awesome thing Horatio Ballard is up to. <laughs> he is uh, wearing nothing but wingtips. 
at Wrigley Field, I think. Um. My, my hope he was eating all the ribs at Carson's that, that they have in their world-famous Carson's, you know, allegedly going to close. And I just like the idea of Horatio Ballard buying it just to keep it open. He goes to Pizzeria Uno, and on a Friday he goes to Pizzeria Duo. <laughs> don't uh, don't forget about Illinois. I have been to Chicago, and I do love uh, the city. Uh, obviously, only as a tourist, but it's a beautiful place. Um, so my my question is uh, way less specific about a character um, because that kind of stuff I'm very interested to read. But I want to know. Um, in, in the original treatment of Chicago by night, the suburbs were sort of um, like left out of it as like a wasteland and no man's land. Um, and that's not really how like the suburbs roll out of Chicago, right? They just kind of keep rolling. That's why they call it Chicagoland. Um, in what way is are the suburbs going to sort of play into the Chicago by night as far as like from a vampiric perspective? Um, oh, man. Are they still going to be kind of treated like the wastelands, uh, or are they going to be like a more important factor? Well, the city chapter that's already up details this a little, uh, and there's only so much geography we can put in. And um, speaking from a design perspective, oh, I think we'll go over two hours, but um, from a design perspective, we can't go too heavy on geography in the book because not everyone's going to care. Right. Um, but uh, what I would say to you is the what you will pick up through reading is a lot of the characters in the book have their own little fiefdoms of territory that are often out in the suburbs. So a um, it, to take someone like Sun, for example, I think he was associated with Skokie uh, back in the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's fair to say he rules that little fiefdom. It's not little. By any stretch, you know, it's it's a town all on its own, but it's still a suburb of Chicago. Right, and so you will find vampires there who basically make those suburbs their domain. Now, Kevin Jackson, or um, or whoever the prince might be, ha <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> might uh, it's all right. Um, Mark Kelly, one of the artists, has already put the illustration of Kevin Jackson up and said Prince of Chicago, Kevin Jackson, so it's not that big a spoiler. Um, in his, and I put this in, in, I guess, inverted commas or quotation marks, rather, um, in his truce with the Lupines, has basically carved out part of the south side of Chicago uh, for their territory and said, you can have this, Here's the passing point. You're not allowed to pass this point without us assailing you, and you can do whatever you like down there, and so on. Whether that's going to hold, whether it's already holding, it's not. It's not holding. But basically, there's a part of of the city that is um, almost exclusively lupine. If you start going out to real Chicagoland um, of Joliet and Naperville and the like, you start seeing characters like uh, he's not detailed in this book, but he will be in either the dossiers or Let the Streets Run Red. Joshua Tarnopolsky, uh, who is in second edition of Chicago, he has basically made those, I think it is in fact Naperville, through to Joliet, his personal domain. So he is like a 
Baron, uh, who is just sitting right on the edge of Chicago now. So yeah, there's there's lots of interesting things going on. Uh, I like to think that the elite of the elite, the Annabelles and the Jacksons and the Ballards and the Sovereigns, they stick to Michigan Avenue and you know that real tourist center. And they, as far as they're concerned, that is Chicago. As far as everyone else is concerned, no, the rest of Chicago is Chicago. You stuck up assholes can stay in Hancock Tower or wherever you are. And to get back to your uh, question, Bob, about Ballard, he isn't uh, naked but for wingtips. He is steadily clawing his way back to prominence because second edition kind of makes him set for a fall. And he definitely fell. But through loyalty to the Ventru, sticking true to the Camarilla, um, being slightly less monstrous than some of the monsters in the cities, and frankly being a very intelligent man um, who's completely ruthless and willing to use his mortal family for whatever he needs. Uh, he has... He'll get back to where he was before, but he's nowhere near as powerful as Jackson or Sovereign or some of the other Vendru in the book. And one more thing about Ballard. Um, the Hakata, which is the name for the holistic clan of death, including the Giovanni, have actually approached Ballard about making the Ballard family a minor family of Clan Giovanni. So there you go. There's a... <laughs> nice little tidbit of information thank you very much that's, that's awesome to hear that's very interesting all right very well exciting. uh two hours we won't keep you much longer um because we could probably keep you for another hour and a half um but i just want to say thank you and um we will definitely reach out to you about um further interactions podcast wise and uh hopefully we'll be able to sit down at a table in front of mics so we can see each other's faces because those make much better podcasts so absolutely thank you uh for joining us and thank you guys for listening and uh until next week i'm nathan and i'm bob and we'll talk to you later hey folks this is nathan from 25 years of vampire the masquerade if you enjoyed the podcast you just listened to think about supporting us for more podcasts art video and gaming go to utilitymuffinlabs.com Follow our podcast on Twitter at 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook under Utility Muffin Lab's name, and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. Thank you again for your support. Utility Muffin Labs, consistently rated adequate. <laughs>